This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we are pleased to be joined by a very special guest and podcast hero to more than a few of us, Tom O'Brien. For years now, Tom O'Brien has hosted the From Alpha to Omega podcast, in which he takes a STEM background as a basis with which to interview differing guests to analyze Marxism more as a science than as a component of, say, the humanities or literature or philosophy. And it's pretty fascinating. Tom also has an interest in modern monetary theory and how the insights from it could potentially influence and expand the Marxist research project. That's the subject of today's conversation, though it kind of wanders all over the place in a freeform fashion. And I hope it will be as enjoyable for you to listen to as it was for us to record. This is part one of a two-part discussion. It was so enjoyable. It's going to take two weeks. What do you say to the idea that there's a conflict between Marxism fundamentally and modern money theory? Well, I think that there is a great deal of confusion among Marxists about money. And I think there's like Marxists have strange ideas about what uh, government debt is, the difference between normal bank credit money, the difference between commodity money, fiat money, all of these different things. In Karl Marx's point of view, I think he would analyze and take on board many of the insights of MMT and integrate them into his theory of capitalism. I find that Marxists don't do that. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why. I think because they're too dogmatic. But I think there are definite things that Marx didn't finish or didn't get done in his stuff. And I, like a lot of stuff in my podcast is just literally about trying to merge these two and take the best bits out of them. Uh, I don't know if I answered your question correctly. MT has got no value theory, which makes it bullshit. Marx's theory has got problems when it comes to currency, which is a hole in the theory. So for me, it's always just about trying to understand the system. Marx was looking at, you know, political economists of his time and, you know, critiquing their work or deriving insights from it. It totally yeah. makes sense that if Marx was around today, he'd be looking at MMT and trying to dig into what's true and what's in critique, what's not true. I think the hostility comes from the way modern monetary theory is sold to people. It's basically sold in the same way that Georgism was sold as sort of like a one-all fix for like capitalism or like the way Marx sort of like described it in like a letter, but he described Georgism as socialism with like out. Yeah, uh, socialism without classes or something, was it like, or... Yeah, it was something like that. Like, basically, the main criticism that white people react so hostily to, like, MMT is because it's basically, like, that one simple trick that will fix everything and allow, like, a return to social democracy, essentially. I think that critique is valid, you know. If you read, like, a lot of MMT stuff, I'm not so sure how much it goes into the book that we read for for this one. But, like, they go into these job guarantees and things like this, you know, the kind of full employment policies of the 50s, 60s, 70s, or whatever. And uh, absent from any of it is any any analysis of class 
you know, the power between the different classes and why that system broke down, you know, which would be, from my point of view, a combination of the class dynamics and also um, the falling rate of profit with some uh, oil shocks brought in and, and just a, a royal clusterfuck. You know, the MMT guys, they don't ever really give a class analysis of why the hell we can't get this stuff done and why it probably is not a systemic fix like, say, communism would be. It's a kind of like a patch job on the class relations. Well, that's what's weird about it is that, like, MMT is at the same time, like, extremely politically determinist, but also completely, like, ignores, like, the political dimensions that would be needed to make it happen. Like, they just seem to, like, evangelize for, look, if, if the Fed just made a trillion-dollar coin, we wouldn't have to have a deficit anymore, you know, and shit like that. Isn't, isn't that awesome? But you never really hear, like, what, what it might actually take. To, I mean, some people do actually touch on this a little bit, and they talk about how there would have to be some kind of, like, bottom-up movement, and they're usually pretty vague about it in order to actually, like, get MMT implemented somewhere. But, like, how you get politically from here to there is very, very vague. I mean, you can just do what the neoliberals did and, like, form think tanks and get money from liberals and then use that to lobby, you know, technocrats to put, you know, your position, your politics into effect. But if you actually implemented, like, full employment with, like, a government wage set at, I guess, they used to say, like, nine bucks an hour, but these days they say, like, 15, I guess, because of inflation. Like, if if you set that kind of ceiling on wages, like, the revolt by the capitalist class would be, like, pretty much universal and immediate. If the government tomorrow set like a $15 an hour minimum wage work guarantee for anybody, how many people would walk off their job the next day? I'm guessing millions. Yeah, depends on what the average wage is like. But yeah, probably a lot of people. Like, I think at the core of it, like there's some real lack of clarity when it comes to understanding, say, the value of currency and the value of labor. So it doesn't have any labor theory value in it, which is a big flaw. And then when it gets to this stuff, what we're talking about, I don't know if you've read this paper. There's like a 1942 paper by Kaletsky. Have you heard about this one? I think it's like something like the problems of full employment. He writes out exactly what happened in the 1970s. You can have full employment capabilities. You can use the state currency. You can use government debt to uh, maintain full employment. But one of the things that will change if you have full employment is the power relations between the capitalist class and the workers. The workers will feel like old economy Steve or something. So I, I don't I really heard about this guy. I think yeah, there's some cartoon and he's right. like... Yeah, it's like the old boomer guy who's growing up and he's like, oh, oh you know, yeah, and he's talking about how easy it was to find a job and, you know, how much money he made and how he was able to just, you know, raise a family off like minimum wage or something like that. Steve got fired by his boss. Steve didn't give a fuck, you know, he went across the road to the other factory and got a job straight away, you know, and it's like, you know, he asked him for a raise and the boss said no. So he told him to go fuck himself and walk down and got a job the next day in another place. You know, it's like this kind of idea. Yeah. Well, there is this impulse, it's almost kind of reactionary amongst both the left and the populist right to basically kind of go back there. This idea that we can just like go back to the old economy where every family had a single earner and, uh, you know, wages were great and, you know, everyone was working, producing things. There's also kind of a producerist aspect to it where people kind of see, you know, productive labor building things as more authentic especially from the end of this book, particularly the coda. Um, so talking about the uh, modern money theory book by uh, Ray. Yeah, Randall Ray, yeah. That book that we all totally read, cover to cover. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I read it. I looked at it for 10 minutes, like I'm not reading that again. <laughs> <laughs> I read like first chapter, a bunch of the last chapter. 
And so anyway, in the last chapter, one of the only two parts I read, there's a coda called A Meme for Money. A little bit of uh, poetic extrapolation on what he believes follows from modern money theory. It's, you know, on the one hand, it's kind of nice. You know, it's not because we pay taxes, but it's because we're all in this together. We take care of our own. Government helps us take care of our own through its social spending. Government cannot run out of money. Anything that is technologically feasible is financially affordable. We need to use the monetary system to pursue the public purpose. When we say that we should take care of our own, we don't mean that in a, in a jingoist way. Sovereign currencies are national. Rich currencies have the capacity to reach beyond their borders. Uh, a rich nation like the United States that issues an international reserve currency, uh, we need to do even more than a sovereign nation does. It's our responsibility to help the world. It's a fairly you know, utopian image of what follows from MMT. It strikes a tone that was part of the uh, social democratic and Leninist traditions. But, you know, aside from that last flourish about not being jingoistic, you know, the, the fascist traditions too. That's p- part of this like Keynesian underlying kind of the German war economy yeah yes like the Nazis the Nazis like back then it was called chartalism and it was like Mm. Friedrich Mm. Knapp or something was the guy and they just implemented his thing so like you know I actually said that to the guy L. Randall Ray when I was interviewing him interviewing him twice (laughs) and and he he nearly flipped like I think he actually I either denied it or just like got quite angry when I when I mentioned it I can imagine that. Like, I think there's a real fetishization of money in it. In reality, if we think about, like, what is money in, um, say, like state money, you've got the US dollar, okay? It's basically the ruling class of a country issues the currency, you know? It's a function of the ruling class, you know? This idea that, like, you know, we can just change, you know, Fed policy, and fucking the world would be brilliant in America is a real lack of understanding of of it. You know, well, it's a very positivist view of of the system. Well, the, the question is always, who's we? Who is this we that's going to change it? You know, yeah, they don't they don't have an answer for that. To be fair, they like a few MMT like economists were a part of like the Bernie Sanders campaign, and I think. That's what they mean by we. They're they're basically going to latch on to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and they're going to try and push it. But I don't think they're going to be able to. In all honesty, they're considered cranks by most economists, and the center of the party doesn't want to deal with that. Deal with like having to like put this sort of policy into play because honestly. It, It would be a throwback to social democracy and like most normal economists, even like Marxist economists and Austrian economists know about like stagflation and that sort of thing. I would say that all the major economists that advise the left wing of the Democratic Party, they're all nearly MMTers. Like uh, the Stephanie Kelton, she was made, she's a hardcore one, she was made like an advisor in the Treasury. You know, all of these guys that you see, like uh, Dean Baker, I think, and some of these guys, most of them guys are MMT guys. Like, if we look at how MMT-style policies did get put into place in, say, the 40s, the 30s, 50s, whatever, Mm. like, they came into place because there was a massive organized left in the developing nations, you know? And and there was pressure from the communist parties, Mm -hmm. right? Mm. 
So, like, like the reason why those full employment policies got undertaken is because it's a function of, of the class relations at that time. There's no reason why, if there is a massive surge left in the next 40 years or something, that the response is not revolutionary, but it's this kind of a social democratic thing again. And, you know, I think we need to understand it and understand that dynamic of capitalism for our critique. Yes. Put forward a communist one. Although I'm not sure that the, the difference between MMT and Marxist economics is limited to the political class content. I do think there's some descriptive difference. And I actually yeah. think MMT might have some good insights on the money and the state well, because uh, we really look at it. It's, you know, it's the state through which money has its legitimacy and its ability to command labor. Right. So, like, a big component of MMT is, like, it's, it's derivation, I think, from, from NAP and from, like, the, the state theory of money, basically. And this argues that throughout history, uh, it was basically states that issued currency. And that basically evolved. Uh, there was this one chapter, I forget the exact details, but they were talking about how, like, money really evolved out of ledgers, um, between merchants, keep you know, keeping credits and debits, and then like state money was really only used for like major purchases for in early history, like antiquity and early history, and then like it really isn't until like the modern era that like state issued money uh, really becomes like a thing that everybody has. Actually. Yeah, and it's because there's so much worldwide commerce. Which I think that's basically what like David Graeber argues in debt and like other yeah. apologists have argued as well. So I mean empirically I think that's probably correct, but I'm not enough of an expert or authority to say for well, sure. If you, you could look at it and say that, you know, the more the law of value becomes dominant in social relations, the more that, you know, you have this phenomenon of like, you know, solid state backed currency that becomes a standard of value. Tom has a serious point. This is also, you know, kind of intuitively where I think MMT and Marxism, you know, collide in, in an interesting way is that Marx had this like commodity theory of money, like, and he also had an interesting critique of the money fetish that Neue Marx lecture and Michael Heinrich pick up on. Well, like Marx was like deriving, like, like all this is basically a critique of political economy. So he's basically right, like, right. dialectically working off of like existing literature at the time. And I don't yeah. know how literally you can take his account of that. You know what I mean? Well, well, exactly. I mean, that's part of Marx's theory that is like just clearly obsolete. Um, I, like, interestingly, uh, Shaikh, uh, Anwar Shaikh, uh, picks up some MMT stuff, like, but also Marx's theory of commodity money is still, like, working in some kind of, like, wave cycle, which is kind of bong rip. I think that's just such harshest. Yeah, when I hear it about conjurative wave, con, how do you say conjurative? K waves. Just call them K waves. Oh, yeah, K waves. When I hear about K waves, I just reach for my Kalashnikov. Yeah, I reach for my Kalashnikov <laughs> because I'm just suspicious <laughs> that there's really any like empirical like basis to yeah. this phenomena. And it's not just you know, like basically like the decadence theory. It's hard to falsify because of the amount of time it yeah. spans over but i think that there's something to it like and you have to like look past sort of like popperian falsification theory and that sort of thing to like you kind of need something like that in the long term that something you just have that like describes like these long periods of economic history they kind of make sense if you think about like the falling rate of profit and crises don't they that endemic to the capitalist system are these long cycles of profitability falling and then crisis and reboot the system 
and that there will be class dynamics will be a function of this. Like it's basically what a lot of the Communist Manifesto talks about, a lot of it too. But it's like, how is the crisis solved? And what are the class yeah, relations of that crisis? There's like a continual cycle of overproduction and crisis, you know, overproduction leading to a raise in the organic composition of capital, which causes a rate of profit to fall, which eventually, you know, leads to a financial panic. And then there's a question of, well, what happens after that? You know, in the Great Depression, there was a massive destruction of capital and reconstruction of the world order. But since the last financial crises for the last, say, 40 years, there hasn't really been any reset, if that makes sense. Like state policy hasn't really changed. I mean, there has been a little bit. Like a lot of a lot of wealth was basically wiped out, like in in the real estate market. And it's really just getting back to where it was. So, you know, and it's yeah. like, there was also kind of like a parasitic operation there, where basically like the wealth of the foreign middle class is basically wiped out and then sort of parasitically absorbed by finance capital. Um, but that's another story. One of the things as well, if you've got to think about Marx's like book, you know, I think Jake was saying it earlier. It was written basically as a reply to Ricardo and Smith, who dealt with commodity money in their books. You know, and when we get to the the fee of currency that we have today, it's not even a commodity. That's something that should be really pointed out to people. It's not a commodity, okay? Because it takes the same amount of energy or work to create more money than there is atoms in the universe or to create one dollar there's no link between labor and the creation of this so when we go talk about treat about modern money we cannot treat it like a commodity and i think that's a massive misunderstanding by people and one thing we also got to say as well that even in marx's time they may have money tied to gold but it's not like everybody was using silver and gold it was all credit money awash the whole place. To think that back in the day when Marx was doing it, everything was gold and silver is just a key misunderstanding of what was happening at the time. And for me, like Marxists who I like, they seem to be so fucking blind to the, the workings of money. It's hard to believe that you could be a world-class economist and not be able to see the kind of truthiness of this MMT stuff when it deals with money. Like, I haven't read Capital in a while, but if I can remember sort of like Marx, like moving through phenomenological, like rearticulation of the labor theory of value, essentially, like basically like money in Marx's kind of like abstract example emerges out of exchange where one commodity becomes the medium of exchange for all the other commodities. If we follow this line of thought, like to today, money is no longer pinned to a particular set of like labor value inputs directly in the form of a commodity. Rather, it simply functions purely as a medium of exchange, like in the abstract. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think how it's linked to a value from this is the way I understand it that it's not an MMT and obviously it's not a Marx, but the value of a dollar you can buy a certain amount of commodities. It's basically what is the average amount of labor in the economy contained in a dollar? The dollar represents an amount of labor. So theoretically, like there are a finite amount of values in the world right now, and there is like a finite amount of dollars so the sum total of exactly. values must correspond to the sum total of cash of money dollars. in existence yeah like so mmt presumes to control inflation basically by having full taxation. employment how does that work exactly <laughs> inflation if you think about it like it's taxation so that's how they control inflation so for example if there is too much money 
in the economy at the moment. They up the taxes, so the amount of money that you're getting in your paycheck is reduced. They basically just take more money out of circulation. Out of the economy, yeah. And so the government runs a surplus. The government doesn't give a shit if they got the money or not. You know, they only want the money so much as that it actually will cause inflation to go down. Okay, how does this work with like we no longer like exchange money? There's no longer an exchange of money for gold that you can get from the government or whatever, right? But how does, yeah. how does this factor in with like international exchange rates and like the interactions between like nation states? Because it seems to me that's where this whole thing gets really hairy. Because like the, it seems like the United States is like the only place where MMT could theoretically possibly work. Well, aren't there some states no. divided into sovereign and non sovereign sort of money assigning states? Changing the money supply and how would that affect trade? Like, how would that, you know what I mean? Like, that, that, that's where this thing gets a little confusing to me. It's not true that America is the only one that did it. Basically, every Western country did MMT style policies for about 30, 40 years. Okay. Britain did them. Full employment policies. I think Australia had 1% unemployment until the 1980s. Okay. okay? And now they have 5 or 6%. They made that decision to change the level of, of employment mm. as, a, as a policy change. But like, if you think about it, if, if you've got two countries, America and you've got Britain, say, the only two countries in the world, and one prints up a whole load of extra money, and they don't produce any extra goods to back that money, if you want to put it like that, the value of their currency, it'll inflate and it'll weaken versus America. And the, the relative prices of the two currencies essentially should be the relative amount of labor productivity, should reflect labor productivity between the two. So if one dollar is able to bring about a certain amount of labor, say 20 minutes of labor in America, and one pound is able to bring out only five minutes in in Britain, you know, one of them will be worth four times more than the other. And that will be what it'll float at. That's the kind of idea of what how it should work. But I think in MMT, they don't have any theory of international currencies changing because they don't have a labor theory of value to figure out mm. why they would have certain yeah. actual prices and that's like a big fucking hole in it yeah that was my first like real critique is instantly thinking well this is kind of just you know looking at a single nation state but the economy is a global division of labor and so there's kind of a just an inherently nationalist methodology and even though they will say oh this is not just about xenophobia but methodologically it is you know about a sovereign national state and how to manage its money supply yeah sovereign i, I mean uh, aesthetically sovereign is definitely associated with you know more autarkic politics but more importantly like i think if you're policy minded you are necessarily for the most part thinking in terms of states individual states unless you're talking about the eu where, where this really st stands out is that the case though? Because like, how much of like state statecraft like today is dealing, you know, with other nations on the world market? I mean, look at what's going on in the United States right now. Like the whole everything is all about, you know, Trump's trade wars or like half-assed, you know. The scrambling of that of that liberal orders kind of economic policy unity to some extent under Trump has been really interesting. Well, I don't want yeah. to. I, I hesitate to say trade wars. Well, more importantly for this conversation, like if we're familiar with the distinction between fiscal, like you know, taxing policy, spending policies, and uh, and monetary policy when we're doing like inflation rates and that kind of stuff. Since the stagflation crisis of the '70s, we moved away from fiscal to monetary policy. And this book is part of a, a wave of thought that is looking more towards fiscal policy after the 2007 crisis and monetary policy appeared to be useless. 
And so Trump also is a manifestation of that. I'm curious if, Tom, you would say, do you think MMT kind of thinks that inflation is the only real logical constraint on on spending when political concerns are, are put aside? Yeah, I think that's fair. I also wanted to ask for our listeners if you could punch in a few of the major differences with like kind of traditional Keynesianism. But my real biggest concern is, so, so if MMT is correct, what has been holding back policymakers during capitalist crisis since the 70s? Is it the lack, is it just economic illiteracy on the part of the political class, or is there some other dynamic? Because I have to wonder why there's such inertia on any major civilizational projects by the Western political class. Maybe now there is some economic illiteracy, but I don't think it's economic illiteracy. I think it's a class analysis. Like, I remember I came across, I think it might have been, um, what do you call those guys? The, the Platypus Affiliated Society. What do you call the main guy? Chris, Chris Kittrell. Yeah, I saw a video of his and he was talking about, weirdly, just this guy, I think he was like working in like the Fed the US Federal Reserve or the Central Bank or some kind of high up Keynesian dude. And when the crisis hit in the 1970s, that there was like essentially like an MMT type response. And it was debated in the Fed about what they should do at the time. And he was a proponent like, this is what we should do. You know, we should have controls on these prices for now and this, that and the other. And that there was a policy response. But the kind of critique by Kaletsky would be that there is also power relations and class relations involved in full employment that they do not like and that they want to have uh, higher rates of exploitation and they don't like the strength of the working class. So like, it's not as if at that time there couldn't have been different policy responses that wouldn't have gone down the neoliberal line. But that Keynesian guy actually became a Marxist after it and wrote a book about why he's a Marxist and not a Keynesian anymore. Can't remember <laughs> the guy's name. But like, you know, and he laid it all out and uh, it was very interesting. But the reason why it's not being done is for class reasons and that they're happy with the current configuration of capital at the moment. I've got loads of arguments with Derek Varn, uh, you know, <laughs> talking about MNT and stuff like, but like from my point of view is like, I don't think MNT is like a solution, but like, unless you understand exactly what are the policy options for capitalists, like you got to have that to be able to inform your politics. That's what's tricky about MMT is that it's at the same time, it seems like it is a description of things as they are, but also a set of like policy prescriptions for how they should be, you know? Sure. So Certainly this author thinks that these policy prescriptions flow directly from the analysis and that this isn't a left or right political issue at all. I think one of the big things in it was like that when you analyze the system, like, because I think they had problems with profitability and stuff at the time, and you were to try and determine using our currency, the rate of profitability in the economy and the rate of exploitation. And we should just like essentially pick and choose like different winners in the economy and <laughs> to a certain extent. And like, so it, it becomes policy wise, a technically fairly feasible thing to do. But like, it doesn't deal with the kind of class relations that capitalists wouldn't like. It also makes bare what's going on. It also makes bare that, look, <laughs> you know, we're just deciding to give these fuckers 15% profit rate. We're literally deciding at a policy level to go, oh, you know, Bill Gates, you can have 15%. 
you know. And like the workers kind of go like, what the fuck? You're just making a policy of that, you know? And I think that's harder for capital to sell on a certain level too. Well, it's, but you know what? It's hard for me to sell myself as well because I think, I think on some level, okay, obviously someone is making policy decisions. On the other hand, like I'm committed to a theoretical vision of capitalism that is essentially parasitic and essentially <laughs> that it has in, inherent laws of go just, parasites go parasites you know like this is this like i think this is the marxist description of capital and it is intuitively on that basis plausible to me that there are these horrible suffocating market pressures that actually do force nation states to Impose austerity and not to, but not even just austerity, but like this description of capitalism seems at odds and I'm still just trying to square it and not that. So it's, it's hard for me to accept on a, on a, on a Marxist level, not just as a you know policy person or something. Well, I think, I think we can all agree. And one thing that we've been returning to is that obviously like capitalism as a system has continued to evolve since Marx's writing. And so the picture that he paints of it, while in many respects, fundamentally still true, like the, like the function of capitalism at a global level has dynamics that did not exist in Marx's time. This kind of makes me sympathetic to the idea that we've entered like this, like, ultra political period of like maybe less capital and more capitalists and like their sort of political stranglehold on society uh is the main thing like keeping them still in power essentially and not so much like any kind of like uh developing the means of production utility or anything like that, that. That's, that's kind of what negri thinks actually that's yeah, I, know, I, I, I don't i don't know if i could commit to this 100 that's implausible <laughs> i don't agree with that that's the like naomi klein like neoliberalism kind of narrative that i grew up with that i think is implausible when you look at the history of the last few decades yeah but i wouldn't underestimate the importance of politics in the economy no 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 because really of like because I, I really actually dislike the term political determinism because well, I'm sure you do. <laughs> because economic determinism is because of how intertwined economics and politics are. Any kind of economic determinism is also going to be a, a political determinism to a certain degree. Well, I feel like the heart of a historical materialist analysis, the extent that that means anything, is that there are certain factors that are bound by certain conditions, and they don't causally interact in a symmetrical way. Some of them are more powerful, but even the ones that are less powerful control different important variables, and there's factors of determination that run in different directions, but you can still have an analysis that's too flat. Basically, what we're trying to say is that we have to think dialectically. Yeah, I'm, I'm I mean, trying to say that without saying it. No, 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 no. I, that, that is that's my that's my reframing of of dialectics from the old forces and relations. Yeah. If you truly that's, understand dialectics, I, you don't have to talk about it. That that's spot I mean, on. That is what I meant. Honestly, I think the like main conflict of the 21st century is going to be the powers of the state versus like the underlying logic of capitalism per se, like. For the latter half of the 20th century, the underlying logic of capital, like the falling rate of profit has been dominant and like it's been acting through like the capitalist class in terms of like the development of what is labeled neoliberalism. Like there's a reason why we can't go back to social democracy and it's because it's simply not profitable for the capitalists. If it's not profitable for the capitalists, then it's not profitable for the entire economy. And 
it's that underlying logic of capitalism that's been pushing policy for the latter half of the 20th century and leading up to now. But this sort of neoliberalism is like continuing to fail to like bring capitalism fully out of that downward spiral in profitability. So at some point, either the political bureaucrats and like some of the capitalist class is going to realize they can't keep on going like this, that they can't keep on just simply doubling down on neoliberalism and hoping for the best because it's continually fucking people over at the bottom. And they can't maintain the sovereignty of the state and like the stability of, of society overall continuing like that. So either they're going to move away from like capitalism slowly but surely through like increased state planning in the economy, or they're just going to collapse. Like it's not a very Marxist thing to do to think that these neoliberal things are in forever. It means no political will by the left or the right to change the state of current political economic life. And I think you can just look to, say, Italy with the five-star looking for, you know, essentially an MMT type thing, the job guarantee. You look to Jeremy Corbyn and some of his policies or, you know, who knows, some MMTers might be hanging around Bernie. The left has been going in a certain direction and it is extremely unlikely to think this neoliberal thing is lasting forever. You know, our problem, I think, as Marxists is to look at how lacking in revolutionary politics we have, you know, where... Bernie Sanders runs on, you know, um, what was his one? The Our revolution. Our revolution, yeah. It should be called Our Mild Reform. You know, it's <laughs> like... It's basically our update America to European standards. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, or like our changing of the amount of production that goes to labour from 56% to 60%. You know, like <laughs> that's, that's the revolution. And so with our confined politics, it's likely to be that we're going to see some kind of use of state money in an MMT-style way as a reaction to the neoliberal establishment class. We've already seen how that plays out with, like, Greece. Like, it simply doesn't happen because, again, underlying pressures of the logic of capital, that falling rate of profit, like... And the relationship between, like, sovereign nations, international capitalism just keeps it from happening. Like, they will not implement those policies. I mean, not, because well, in the end, will, they will, know they will get fucked over. In all fairness, like, Greece was uniquely poorly positioned to do it. But what were you going to say, Donald? They don't even well, have a currency. I mean, so they can't do it. What I was going to say is, when you had the post-war era, where you did have large-scale, like, global-scale actual reform of capitalism... It was because you had, one, a large workers' movement that was able to exert pressure on the state, and then you had a gigantic crash and a huge destruction of capital. And then you had, you know, basically Soviet tanks on the border of Europe. And so, essentially, you had—the capitalists had an incentive to um, raise wages and create a more stabilized economy because they were facing the threat of total expropriation. And there was enough capital destruction to basically make it so that they could afford to give people higher wages. So I think that it is possible that, you know, this neoliberal and really, in a way, neoliberalism, what people call neoliberalism, is basically just capitalism before the post-war era. Yeah, but what, it's, it's what, really just classical capitalism. What Tom so is gesturing at here, though, is, is related to MMT. 
is yeah. that they don't control their currency, right? Well, I was going to say is that I think that maybe some kind of MMT social democratic reform might be possible, but it would take a huge crash and pressure from the workers' movement in order to discipline the capitalist class to accept those kind of reforms. And if we have that level of power, we might as well just overthrow the whole system anyway. Yeah, yeah, but this is that's the key. But that's the key thing, though. Like the thing is, though, the left is not revolutionary at the moment. I'm reading the Communist Manifesto at the moment, and you're just like kind of going, the revolutionary left is so weak; it's barely not existent. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So any kind of so is you know, like in a way, I'd say. Sorry, because you do have political figures, but you don't have, you know, a strong labor movement to back them up. Like Jeremy Corbyn can't threaten, you know, the call of the trade union federation on the strike if people don't give in to X policy, for example. I think, again, it goes back to the falling rate of profit. Like, I don't think it's possible to implement social democratic policies successfully because it would give too much of a leverage for, like, the working class. It would make a crisis of profitability worse, and we've been going through a crisis of profitability yeah. the latter half of the 20th century. There would be like the 70s. Flight. There'd be a revolt of the capitalist class. So yeah, it's, that's the problem. Is you have to be able to deal with capital flight, and so for, think- the capitalists they have to be disciplined, and they have to have you know an incentive to not do capital flight, which is often the threat of a revolutionary movement. So I, I agree with Rosa and Donald that there are underlying facets in sort of the falling rate of profit, the post-war compromise, I chime in with automation, logistics, that sort of thing. But I think another historic facet that we need to take into account is through the 20th century and including the 20th century social movement of socialism, I should say, social institutions like unions, which had this kind of tenuous alliance with the working class, even the left itself, pressured the state into these MMT-style policies, but became sort of politically subsumed to the state for that trade-off. And I think gave up a lot of authority among the proletariat and general power in doing so. I mean, I think a facet we, we haven't contended with is that the capitalist politicians, through that compromise, no longer need to bargain with these social actors at all. Capital flight can be overstated, as in, like, you can't move factories, you can't move houses. What you can move is liquid acids. So that is a thing. But I think that if these things were to actually happen, more than likely, lads, it'll happen in a, in a big imperial power. And it will emanate from there if it's going to take off. So it could happen somewhere like America. The other thing I'd like to say before we get into, but just about the profitability crisis, like Russia, when they had Gosplan and all that kind of stuff, you know, they had currencies. Companies made losses. The government didn't give a fuck. They would just wipe them out. You know, it was accounting kind of stuff. Yeah, money was like just a you... way to like basically ration stuff. Exactly. And when you get, if you follow MMT to its actual logic, the power of the currency, you can actually pick, you can stop any firm you want from going bust because you can buy their products to such a certain extent with state money, which if it's production and it's backed by money that's coming in to buy it, you can actually determine what level of production you want in the entire economy if you want to follow it to its entire logic that's what people from the austrian school always say to describe that like well this is just the road to so this is the road to soviet union you just want to command economy exactly. it is essentially if you if you follow it like yeah it can actually choose and, and it can choose the essentially the the rate of profit that's essentially what it can choose 
because it's it, it actually becomes just basically a planned economy. You know, that's well, the yeah, logic. Well, I was saying it. that if you had, say, a socialist revolution, attempts to kind of immediately nationalize everything usually fail. And so kind oh, yeah, of from not... studying the economic problems of socialist societies, it's clear that you're going to have to deal with a period where you have kind of a form of market socialism next to, a, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. that gradually becomes more and more cooperative. So maybe MMT has some ideas on how we can basically, you know, have a sort of neo-new economic policy in the transition to socialism. I'm not putting it forward as a, like a solution or anything. I'm just saying, like, if you follow that logic, and certainly, like, if they were to introduce it in the morning, in the UK or Britain, assuming somebody doesn't invade them for doing it or something crazy, right? But, like, they can do it. And, like, you know, maybe they'll fuck it up. And that's probably quite likely. But, you know, the thing is, if you follow their logic, it is a possible, plausible solution, just like a planned economy is. And certainly in the short term, it could definitely work. As leftists, or as communists, as Marxists, we've just got to get our analysis fucking right. That's just my... Only point with MMT, get our fucking analysis right. I like Andrew Kleiman's work on profitability and transformation problem and all that stuff. But then you go ahead and you hear him and he talks about government debt like uh, an Austrian economist. And nearly every Marxist does. Yeah, and we're shake does. And we're shake, basically. I read, somebody pointed me off to one of his lectures on MMT where he basically went through it all. And basically, you might as well have just been reading the fucking Goldbug page. It was pathetic. Well, my problem with Kleiman is that he thinks that basically every word in capital is true and that there's really no more to the research program that needs to be done. And Marx basically just figured it all out already. And it's already completely consistent, systematic theory that needs no updating. And that's what bothers me about Kleiman, because that just seems generally an unscientific approach. Well, he claims that it's perfect, but needs to be empirically verified. That's what he argues. And then well, he claims to empirically verify it. I don't know if he says it's complete. I don't think he would yeah. say it's complete. Well, he says it's, self, he says it's self-consistent. It's self-consistent. From what I can see, book one and two are self-consistent. I have read book three, and that seems fairly consistent. But I know, like, even hardcore Marxists say the latter half of book three is is full of shit in places and all over the place. So, well, the latter so, half of book three in the chapters on ground rent, he almost yields ground to um, marginalist theories of value because he's trying yeah. to explain how rent prices prices and how the law of value yeah. of rents interact. And so you can kind of see how he, he leaves room for these kind of subjective factors to shape prices in his whole I'm, theory of value. I, I, I mean, it makes sense. That's not a mistake. That's like, that's no. a virtue of his theory. Oh, yeah, I'm saying, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it's a mistake. I just think it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, no, it, it, it makes it makes sense given that it's angles like trying to piece together incomplete manuscripts into books. So. But you do have a guy, um, S. Artisan. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's... um kind of a left communist, um, hardcore capital fan. He really dislikes the whole part in volume three on ground rent just because it kind of yields the slightest bit of grounds to marginalism. Yeah, it's way, That's way too... That's kind of absurd. Up. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. what he's basically trying to do is come up with a theory of price of rent. You know, there's not a value on rent, there's a price. Specialized access to skills that are kind of monopolized by certain, like a small sector of the economy allows you to essentially have part of your wage be rent and basically be paid above the value of your labor. 
essentially through yeah. rent collection. And so that kind of explains, you know, the whole every hedge fund class and you know the, the people yeah. in between the proletariat and the bourgeois they're basically petty rentiers google engineers when you think about things that are famously hard to pin down like art or advertising that makes a product seem more valuable like it's plausible that it takes the piss out of other competitors in the sector exactly it distills surplus it's a yeah, method it's... of stealing surplus it's like a rent it's yeah, not a rent exactly. but it's like a rent because whenever well, you bring up the labor theory kind of, of value, yeah, I was going to say when you bring up the labor theory of value, a lot of times people go, well, "What about a painting? Like I spent hours on this painting, and I can only sell it for eighty dollars or whatever." But the thing is, Marx is talking about production that's disciplined to competitive markets producing mass commodities to be sold on mass for profits. Not talking about artis artisanal production. And that's it's the really naked core of the theory. Even if you do have something like a Nike sneaker that is like, you know, made industrially, the those like very abstract models aren't even adjusted for stuff like branding. So rent and like Rantier analysis that Marx deftly introduces helps to like build out and flesh out his model. People don't like it though, because you're suggesting that doctors and professors and lawyers aren't polls like everyone else, which I don't know. People get annoyed by that. Well, I think Marx, Marx would have said that doctors are polls. No. Okay. You're out of here. You're out of here. <laughs> no, but he, he, no, he would have, it's, he would have, Why is that? Because you, you can, because, well, you can break down, labor into any kind of complex labor into simple labor. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you know, just, is that not like the absolute core of our guests? Well, <laughs> is, he not, is that not the very core of Marxism where he, he explains how you can have complex labor and reduce oh. it to multiples of simpler labor? labor. I, and if, if you take it, the doctor is just a form of complex labor that can equally be broken down. So, you know, his labor is worth more because but, it's highly trained. I think that's a reductive way of looking at class, the kind of credential that you need. I know, I know about proletarian. I'm just talking about, it's not like the doctor in theory is, is getting a rent. It's the fact that he's such a highly skilled person that it would I mean, take 10 people to do his job I, if you broke it down into a repeatable commodity type production. I, I think it's kind of unhelpful to think of the proletariat as a purely Rich. economic category. It's true. Think of it in terms of like a political category of the working class becoming politicized. And that, that means like not just productive laborers, although that will be the core base of like productive laborers who are involved in commodity production. You would have to include like specialized labor that doesn't necessarily produce commodities per se, but has like the general interests, political interests along with the working class. Well, they would be broadly collected in the proletariat as the political entity. Well, and Marx says like the proletarians are those without reserves who are so who have no like property or any other basis, and the only thing they have to sell is like their raw power to perform labor essentially. And that's no, true because because doctors, well, especially in the United States, the doctors basically have a cartel that limits the number, of, and they're basically in a guild yeah. essentially. So that puts them like in a slightly different class category. I mean, not quite bourgeois, but I mean, that's petty bourgeois, like, like, it, like professional class. Yeah, in America, they probably get a rent but in like in cuba they don't get a rent or like say in the uk they might only get a small rent 
you could proletarianize doctors. You absolutely could. Yeah. The specialist question is honestly something I think is not talked about enough in Marxism. And, and I think it's actually really politically important because it relates to the question of transitioning into a classless society. Because specialization of labor does create, you know, divisions between people who do intellectual labor and grunt work. And if you really want to eliminate class society, you can't just nationalize everything. You have to actually eliminate that sort of mental manual division of labor where people are inherently in one form or the other. Well, the other thing is you also just triggered something because locally, you know, we've had this debate with someone we knew about whether doctors are proles like a million times, and it was super frustrating. So, <laughs> I mean, I can see in the UK, but in America, doctors, you know, live on the river and have, you know, huge hedge funds sometimes. Yeah, they all have like three houses and a fucking jet ski and yeah. Fuck those people. Yeah. Anyway, I've, I, have a que- I have something to say. Jake, you said that dynamics in the world economy now that can't be explained by Marx, like in capital. I don't see that. I, I don't know what these dynamics are. Everything well, I see in the world economy yeah, is actually, fucking explained by it. I, agree with I gotta pull you up on that. I mean, I has I has explain to... yourself. Yeah, I know. Well, don't you think at some level like capitalism has shifted in terms of in certain certain ways? I mean, even the thing we're like talking about right now, like modern like money like operates like differently than it did under like, you know, when it, when no, it was like fixed to gold, you know? But like I think it operated exactly the same way as gold, because it was always going off gold and on gold. Like mm. The right-wing gold bug types, or even some Marxist types, say there's not a currency ever that didn't hyperinflate or something like that. But you can say the exact same thing about gold. There was never a gold standard that ever but fucking isn't like a major talking point of modern money theory is that money operates differently now that we're off the gold standard. Like that's that's the big talking point with them like i've been like binge watching youtube videos and that's literally what they start off with in their like explanation of it it's like yeah we're not on the gold standard anymore we're on fiat money and fiat money operates entirely differently from from the gold standard because well, we're not limited some... by the amount of gold like actually existing gold we don't have to tie money to gold well i guess maybe what i was thinking of was more like political stuff like for instance yeah. the high level of productivity of capitalism has kind of created this weird thing where the capitalist class has like a lot of leeway that they can basically give to create like a middle strata that will like fend off like class contradictions right and i think that's only possible because there's such like a high level of productivity like throughout society you know what i mean like the capitalists just have more to work with in terms of like bribing like sections of the working class i think think there's i will say one thing that marx didn't really predict and i think kind of got he he saw you know for example he thought the petty bourgeois was going to over time just basically be completely crunched away by capital because the destruction of the peasantry and everyone eventually become either capitalists or industrial workers but capitalism relies so much on technology and technological advancements that it creates this whole strata of engineers and highly paid specialists and whatnot that kind of become the new petty bourgeoisie. I would make the case that like Marx was probably (laughs) right. Like as in there was all the revolutions in the early 20th century of communist revolutions because of those dynamics. But if we look today when the Soviet Union and all these guys were there and the, the West went towards MMT style policies, and now they're off them and the Soviet Union is gone. Look what's happening to the inequality in the system and the immiseration when it was just purely capitalist before. The levels are tending back towards where they were before all that stuff happened. So those dynamics that Marx pointed out in 1880 
are looking like the same dynamics that are starting to reemerge again when you just have a purely capitalist system essentially operating. Yeah, so, I think at the level of how would, Marx abstracted capitalism, he is completely correct. And that he, he and does I, find the general fundamental laws of capitalist production. Yeah, and I think even those political like, ideas of the proletariat, as we observe <laughs> over the next 50 years of our lives, if there is no communist revolutions, like, uh, have, have a look. And I, I predict that we will see the same immiseration of those petty bourgeois and the same underlying things that Marx pointed to are other force there that was an alternative. I've been thinking a lot about it lately. I think those dynamics are definitely, just look at the Gini coefficients since the 1980s in all the Western countries. They're all tending back to where they were in fucking 1880. Capitalism will always lead to crisis. You know, there's never going to be a crisis-free capitalism is where Marx is very on point because he's able to derive from abstraction, the laws of capitalist production, and we can consistently use these, you know, this analysis of the law of value and the falling rate of profit to explain continual capitalist crises. And so there's absolutely no reason to say that, you know, capitalism has to overcome its tendencies to crisis. And, you know, there have been periods where people said this, like in the 1970s, and like, I mean, or more so the 60s, there were a lot of like technocrat type people who are saying that capitalism in the West and the Soviet Union were actually kind of converging to the same system of like a bureaucratic, you know, planned society, and that capitalism was using the state to overcome all its internal contradictions. But in the end, the economic logic is more dominant. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I'd like one thing I would say as well. Something that Rose has said was that them and tier videos going on about how they say the the dynamics are different now. We have like a fiat currency before that with a gold back currency. But I think that. That is a kind of a, a crude analysis by MM Tears because it's not like for every pound in England there was like a pound of gold, uh, uh, silver or whatever was the, uh, the original one. Like there was credit money being created everywhere. Government created banknotes. They weren't backed. All the, all the backing meant was that if you actually wanted to get silver or gold for your currency, you could get it. Most of it was to do with international trade and how they did trade balance and stuff like that. But there was fiat money going on all that time and credit money being created all over the place. But it just had this technical tie to gold or silver. Ray actually says that it's always been fiat money. That's it's, that's yeah, it's always been fiat. This reminds me of, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mike McNair, but he talks about the world market and he says that basically global trade requires credit money and credit money requires states. And so basically, you know, you're always going to have to have a state that's the guarantor of money. And so maybe, you know, he's kind of onto something there. Because the United States is the um, main guarantor of, you know, money, it's the main dominant currency. And it's the main dominant currency because it has the strongest military power in the world. And so therefore, its assets are the most protected and it's the safest, like, investment to hedge against, I guess. Absolutely. And like another thing there is that really must be stated is it's intrinsically linked to power, like that the, the state currency. And if we think about like why can't like Nigeria do MMT the same way as say America could if they wanted to? America would fucking topple their government or they would fucking invade or the British would or they'd fuck them up. Right. So well, I like, think that goes to the very problem with social democracy is that it's a nationalist project and it relies on sovereign states 
and so therefore chauvinist in a way because i feel like though if, they, if you if america tried to do it america would invade america you know they might but it depends on on how strong the the commies were <laughs> yeah it would depend on how much of the army we could convince to turn on their officers essentially Fragum, frag yeah, exactly. Fragum. I mean, yeah. that's why. I mean, the conditions. You know, Engels basically says if you have the support of majority of the working class and you can count on the army dissolving, then you have the conditions for revolution. But the collapse of you know the U.S. empire and its decline is basically almost you know simultaneous, perhaps with its um, dominance as the world guarantor currency. And the dollar might become eventually replaced by a different currency backed by a stronger state if, you know, it continues, if the U.S. eventually stops becoming the dominant power. That's it for this week. I just want to say two quick things. One, the nascent analytical Marxist journal Catalyst just kicked out Robert Brenner off their editorial board, like, unceremoniously. Apparently it's Bhaskar Sankara and Vivek Chibber who are at fault, and I just want to say that's garbage. Makes Sankara seem like a total opportunist and Chibber. That dude is so influenced by Bob. This is like some Selena fan club shit. Anyway, apparently Brenner is doing some kind of email campaign. I'm not plugged in or anything. Anyone wants to link me or us you should talk to us because I'm going to like cancel my subscription if they go through with that shit. Oh yeah, and two, have a happy pride to however many queer listeners we actually have. I hope there's a lot. You should talk to us. I know there's a few. Seriously though, enjoy it. I've been too sour to enjoy things like this for most of my life, you know. Oh, it's getting so corporate. They're subsuming my gayness. They're subsuming it. My queerness. Radical marginality. I, I I don't really see the point. Um, this weekend, I'm going to crack into a crisp, cool Bud Light and fresh pair of Nike trainers and some smart Gap khakis. Nah, I'm going to get high in a dress, but I mean, you do you. That's my point. And don't let people make you feel bad for trying to enjoy the orgy before you have to go back to work. Like us on SoundCloud or... Nah, you don't like on SoundCloud, right? You, like, heart it. Like us on Facebook. Check us out on SoundCloud iTunes, Google, whatever. Just do it, babe. Probably gonna set up a Patreon sometime soon. That's exciting. Um, let us know what bonuses a communist podcast should offer for donations. It'd be kind of funny, right? Right? Hey, next week we got part two of our discussion with Tom, so stick around. We're gonna ask him about the cold fusion thing. It's gonna be great. Well, until next time, keep those boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.